Have you been zombified by competition? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. But I mean, a lot of times I'm terrible at most competitions. So, you know, but Mm. I still hate losing. So, yes, yes. How about you? I mean, I've been zombified by competition in the sense that my inability to effectively compete at sports was a (laughs) central feature of my grade school experience. So... Yeah, no, me too. I mean, I still remember getting cut from the basketball team as like a traumatic. It was like a, it was that was it. I was like, well, so much for this being part of your identity. So, See, if yeah. I would have even gotten to the point to be on the basketball team so that I could have been cut, that oh. would have been just amazing. I would have been no, so happy. No, they cut you right at the beginning. That's like the that's what happened. You go to tryouts and then you get cut and then you're not oh, on the team. You so. mean you weren't you weren't on it? I didn't make. See, the I team. misunderstood. It's not like I thought cut. you were like on it, and then they're like, "Never mind, we made a mistake." No. no. Okay. So. <laughs> 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 uh, and now, now with my kids, you know, I'm I'm trying to actually get them to not get cut, uh, and mm. which I think we talk about a bit today. Um, but we do. It's yeah. an interesting talk because we're talking to Scott Brooks, and yeah, and. Scott has an awesome perspective because he has been a professional athlete and a coach. And right now he is the associate director, of the Global Sport Institute at ASU. And he's also an associate professor um, in the T. Denny Stanford School of Social and Family Dynamics at ASU. So he really just has this amazing background ranging from, you know, being like there in the sports as a player being a coach, being a parent of kids who are playing sports, and then also having the academic background in sports. So, um, you know, he's, he just comes at it from all different angles. Yeah. And it really shows like, even though I think, you know, it sounds like he made his high school basketball team, there's a real downside to it. Like it's the talking about the pressure and everything that kids put themselves through and parents put kids through and coaches put kids through um so yeah it's yeah and and it's complicated right because there's so many great things about having the opportunity to compete in sports so how do you kind of balance those things how do you get the best things from competition without having the downsides these are all things that we talk about in the show yeah Yeah, even as i listed all those downsides i was still thinking i still wish i made the team so Um. Well, I'm your host, Athena Actippus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I am your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Henrik, media outreach program manager at ASU's psych department and uh, brain enthusiast. And um, We love brains. Yeah. And this fresh brain that we have this week, Scott Brooks, is just amazingly nutritious and delicious. And it's really fun. It's really, you know, it's a, it's a fun interview. So yeah. uh, afterwards, we should tell people about the conference in Channel Z. Oh, yes. So. Please stay tuned after if you want to hear all about the amazing meeting that we're having, which is like a cross between an academic meeting and Burning Man or something. It's like not not a typical academic meeting. We'd love to have you there. You can also check it out at zombiemed.org um, and we'll chat about it That's after right. the show. Yeah. And so. also, just so you know, if you register for the conference, you do get a shirt. So it's almost like you made a team. So um. <laughs> Great point, Dave. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain 
Scott Brooks. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how Hey. <laughs> Great, thank you, thank you. Happy to be here. Could you uh, start by introducing yourself in your own words? Sure, sure. Uh, so I think of myself as a coach, um, probably parent first, um, coach, and then I'm an urban sociologist. And so I get to study uh, coaching and coaching kids in particular while I'm doing sociology. That's pretty awesome. How old are your kids? You said your parents? 22, 19, and 14. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did you get into what you study and do? Like, what was your path to? to yeah. Into? So it, it really started, um, you know, the long version is being an athlete and a frustrated athlete. And it really, my life changed senior year high school, having played basketball at a very prominent uh, high school in Northern California in Oakland. Um, under a coach who was one of the winningest coaches in California state history and struggling. I was a co-team captain senior year. We were one of the best teams in the state and didn't feel like I got a fair shake. Felt like uh, the other co-captain, he and I competed for the same position. And I thought there were racial dynamics at play that uh, created some problems. And I ended up quitting. And that was a big deal because it was the first time that I took charge of my own decision. So instead of my parents, who had always told me, you stick things out, uh, I found it to be a situation that I could not get past and was not being my best self. Um, wanted to, you know, get into physical altercations with my coach. I was mm. that upset. Uh, I had some scholarship opportunities that went by the wayside um, based on how he played me and, and my performance. And so it was a big decision to decide not to play. And that really kind of changed my life. After that, I felt like I, I didn't make, I didn't have my parents really helping me make any decisions from that point on. So that's at 17 or 18 and, wow. and so, kind of move forward. And that was my passion. How can I then help other kids to get better sporting experiences? And how can I help coaches and athletes really communicate. So that was that was the beginning. And then the pursuit was, how do I do that? And that's yeah. how I went on to study and you know, go to school and, and pursue studying sport. That's awesome. And I mean, we're like, we're already talking about zombification. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right? Like it definitely freeing yourself over. from zombification. Yeah, yeah. And so like, so for you, in terms of like looking at this much bigger picture yeah. of what's going on in youth sports, mm -hmm. And the pressures that, that kids have from their parents and their coaches. So, I mean, you had like an intimate I experience I did. with that. It took me, I estimate it was 10 to 12 years to get over my high school experience. Wow. And so really I was zombified. It, it took over my head. Uh, in many ways, I still deal with it because basketball, as much as I love it, is not as much fun to play. 
And it really became, I, I was in a situation where I could not play freely. Um, and that's what happens to many kids. Unfortunately, in our current system, which is a pay for play model, you know, Time Magazine said, I think it's three or four years ago now that youth sports is an $18 billion industry. Wow. And so the way that it takes over and it is no longer extracurricular, it hasn't been for probably 25 years or so. We continue to call it an extracurricular activity, but it is a curricular activity. It really defines kids. We talk about athlete identity. Sports have really become so important. Uh, and you can see it whether we're talking about big time sports events and you know the amount of attention media gives to sport. It's front page. It is no longer simply you're resigned to a sports page. Now you'll get a LeBron James does something and it can make the front page mm-hmm. and, and the like Simone Biles. You know, all these things have become more front page. And so it's taken over our country's mind. And that makes it more of a, it gives it more of an impression on young people's minds. Their parents are starting to think of them uh, as athletes early on. And all of that zombification happens pretty early. And so when it doesn't go well, Kids are often left wondering what happened and it changes their sense of self-worth and you know, whether they were competent, it can impact their relationship with their parents. Parents think they could have gotten more if they weren't lazy or if they had just done what I said and, and wow. the like it. So there's a lot of regrets that come out of it. And so, yeah, it really does take over. Yeah. So who are the important players in this zombification dynamic? Yeah, You've, you yeah. talked about the parents and the coaches, and then there's sort of the larger institutional factors, like maybe just like starting with the most intimate influences and then like working your way out, like, like maybe parents first, like what happens there? And and if you feel comfortable, like sharing about your personal experience and like what it feels like to be zombified in that way. Yeah. So if I start there, I think that, you know, there are the stories, Alan Iverson's mother says when he was born, she looked at his feet and hands and said, oh, I have an athlete. He's a basketball player. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you can go back to uh, Marinovich, who was this kid who was called the Robo QB when he was in high school. His father had played for USC, then played shortly for the Raiders and then became an athletic trainer. And so it's not just myth. They talk about it. Uh, father was giving him massages when he was an infant to kind of get to encourage his muscles to lengthen. Sports, in, infant sports massage. <laughs> exactly, infant <laughs> sports massage. And, you know, really his father had said he, he looked at different kinds of lifting over in Europe and really started integrating, you know, and in, in teaching his son certain lifts to get him prepared. Uh, you know, as soon as he was able to walk, he, he had him doing football drills uh, and, and the like. And, and Marinovich's story is tragic, although he, he panned out. He became the best quarterback in the country as a high schooler, uh, then went and played for USC, which was the dream his father had. Even his grandfather, he played at USC. He went on and made it to the pros and played for the Raiders like his father. I mean, everything was there. And he talks about his father had always said, one day you're going to play and you're going to beat the New York Jets. And that was because his father grew up with Joe Namath and this whole idea of the New York Jets. And Marinovich says when he actually got there and beat the New York Jets, that was the end. He literally, like, that was the goal. Oh my that was gosh. it. And he, and everything from there went really bad. Now, he had already started taking drugs in high school. 
He had a reputation amongst high schools when he was playing games. There's one particular basketball game where he's at the free throw line and they started talking about him. There was a chant that had something to do with him being a, you know, a, a stoner. And he talks about laughing. And then at, at uh, USC, he was he was on coke. And so he wasn't always, you know, in his right mind, but he wow. still played. And so the drug use just got worse and worse. And then, yeah, that Jets game was, he said, the end. Like, he had accomplished everything that had kind of been in his head, and he snapped, and it just went terribly bad from there. So, like, what, how did it go bad? So, the cocaine use and drug use just took over his it life. Took over, so. Yeah, it took over. So, it was it was a quick downward spiral. He was, he was out of the league, I think, within two years from that time. Wow. And having it been a huge, you know, early round draft pick and, and the like, it just... Yeah, it was it was a steep, steep, steep fall. And so you get these parents who are thinking about their kids immediately as athletes who then go about training in different ways. Jennifer Capriotti, uh, the tennis player back in the uh, 80s, you know, she got burnt out. I mean, she was a teenager and was at the top of her game at 15, 16 years of age. And she talked about the pressure with her parents. And, you know, those are the stories that that go on and on, just the parents and the pressure of wanting to live up to your parents' standards, not being able to separate your parent from their coaching or, and not always that they're your actual coach. It may just be that they're your, your, your mental coach. And that's the role they often take, take, right. you know, and, and not having that separation really kind of hurts that relationship. And with parents too, oftentimes like it's hard to separate yourself and your own goals Absolutely. from your parents' goals, especially when you're young, right? And yeah. then if you grow up with a really intense relationship with your parents, right. I mean, part of adolescence is like actually figuring out what your own goals are. Absolutely. And Absolutely. so if you've been so invested in these goals that your parents have for you yep. as you're going through adolescence, it must be just doubly And especially if you're good, right? So it's kind of like, well, how can I go against this and think that I want to be something else when I'm actually good at it, right? If you're not good, it, it hurts, but you probably, you know, you're looking for another way. But if you're good, it was hard for Marinovich to stop playing when he was so good at it. And he knew that it was there. He knew, and his dad seemed right because everything his dad had kind of said had come true, but the treatment. So he, his dad got upset with him and had him run the three miles behind the car. He wouldn't put him in the car. He was mad at how he performed at a game. And so he's like, you're going to have to this run. This is a kid? Yeah, this is, okay. he's in high school. Okay. Yeah, he's in high school. But he said, yeah, I had to run three miles. He said, yeah, everyone said it was five. It wasn't five. It was only like three, three and a half. He said, but <laughs> I was such an amazing athlete. He's like running three miles, three and a half miles after a game. He's like, it really wasn't a big deal to me. Like, and he kind of just, but you can understand why he would go into drug use. Like, it's kind of like the only escape. The, the myths were that he never ate McDonald's. And he was like, well, that's not quite true. But, you know, you had to deal with all these. But when the things are coming to fruition, it is also harder for a kid not to. And in a weird way, it's a play on Weber's Protestant ethic and the whole idea of the calling. And so when kids see that they've done so well and others talk about them and give them praise um, and it's talked about as a God-given talent, then the thought is it's not just yours. It's something you're supposed to share. This was, you know, and and this is your your duty is to actually share this. And so it's hard for them to fight. Parents can put on these guilt trips and give you all this extra. So it's even beyond them. And then all the praise that comes with it just 
Yeah, it, it, it continues to affirm that their parents have been right in making the decisions and going about it the way that they have. So even though if the methods may seem questionable, the results are what lend itself to saying this is the right way, you know, and I should continue to do it. And it makes it really tough. I mean, also, like, it's on a societal level, right? Like, it's it's good to be good at sports. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. And so, I don't know. Like, so, so my son is 13, and I'm trying to, like, push him into being more into sports. Not making him run after the car. <laughs> but, you know, I just do it. Maybe you're not doing enough then. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> like, um, I should take notes. So, um, but, but I do think there is a thing where it's like, you know, because there's a lot of people who got hooked on Coke that didn't play for the Raiders, you know? Absolutely. And so Absolutely. I, I feel like it, it can provide opportunities, and not even just if somebody makes this a pro athlete, like... Because also my daughter does play. She likes volleyball, and it's like such a good social aspect. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And so, but she has right. to every year really try to make the team because it gets harder and harder, right. like to not right. get cut. And so we're like paying for all these camps and things like that. So, but I don't know. It's just I feel like there is. You know what I mean? Like there yeah. is a there are a lot of benefits. There are one of the things that you know from my standpoint as I look at coaching, we talk about the benefits a lot. What we spend less time talking about is how the benefits actually happen. And so we act as though it's automatic, that just by participating, there's going to be benefits. And so as our model has moved more and more towards this performance to, to stratifying kids by the elite from those who are not your daughter being in volleyball, think of the clubs and all the levels within the club and who gets to be on the top team and, and so on. There's a lot of stratification and it's not automatic that they're going to have all of the good experiences. There are many. And I think the younger they are, when we're not putting as much pressure and stratifying them, those benefits can accrue pretty well, but you still get coaching has to be done deliberately in a way to really maximize those benefits. And when you have coaches, you know, one terrible example, uh, I coached my daughter in soccer for uh, several years and started coaching her at about the age of seven or eight. She had already been playing for three years. She had been, she skipped on the field, had, had the time of her life, but she caught, she wasn't always aware of the attention she was gaining for not being focused. Okay. <laughs> coaches would be upset Goals were scored at times. Parents were upset, often teammates. So I started coaching really because I wanted to relieve that pressure. And I wanted her, I did want her to focus more and figure that out. But I felt like I could do a better job of helping her to understand that. Um, and I also believe that kids should, have, should play in different roles. It's great to be a star player, but it's also great to be a role player. You, you know, you need to have humility, understand the different positions others are in so that you can, you know, best either lead or just be a good friend as needed. I don't think kids should only be star players. I think that they should have that so that they're able to deal with adversity. Yeah, well, as and well. You, everybody can't be a star. Absolutely. Right. I mean, Absolutely. like that's the thing. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, not everybody can be the top. Not everybody yep. can be at the front of the pack. Right. Like it's just there's going to be some people on the team who are. Yes. Not the superstars. When the when your parent is coaching, though, it's a good chance you're going to get to be the star. And so it's one of those, the, those tough things. Um, but in it, I really stressed, 
you know, how can we make sure that this is a positive experience for for Maya, but for all of the girls that she was playing with? And we played on a couple of co-ed teams. And those are situations where I had to tell her, why is it that when we play with just same sex, you're, you're on girls teams, you have no problem playing hard and showing out. And then we play with boys on our team. And all of a sudden you're laying back and letting them kick the ball and you're kind of letting mm. them dictate. So it was, again, you could be, if I'm a coach who just cares about winning, I might not worry about those kinds of things. Instead, I challenged my girls to, to step up. You know, I wanted them to stand out and do what they were capable of doing, what I knew they did when there weren't boys around. Right. And so, but you have to be deliberate. Right. Mm. So, I well, was, and then that's, you're talking about like coaching to stop the zombification. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Like, yes, so that you're not, you know, inhibiting yourself because there's, you know, boys that's around right. or whatever it is. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And some coaches just, I mean, even at coaching girls who were, I want to say they were nine at the time. I had a parent ask me, is it okay? The coach throws balls at the girls when he's upset. What? I said, wow. why are you asking me if it's okay if someone is throwing a ball <laughs> at your daughter? Like, what? It, and she says, he gets really upset. And I thought it was inappropriate, but he was telling, you know, he tells them, you know, you've got to get tougher. And, you know, the mother was like, and I think that there is some toughening up that, that should be done. And I said, but is that for you to do? Mm-hmm. Or is that for, you know, what is that? And what does that look like? And so we, we do have to be careful with, with coaches in particular. Um, our coaches here in our country, uh, youth sports are, are without volunteerism, we have no youth sports. Parents have to volunteer. They have the most interest, vested interest in their kids being able to participate. And we just don't have the resources. We don't have people. We're not paying anyone to be youth coaches. We don't have a national youth development program that, you know, like you go into other countries where they look at, at kids at a young age and figure out, you know, in China, they figure out, well, what might you be good at? And then we invest in developing you. For us, it's all volunteerism and we put our kids into these opportunities. And so you can't ask coaches to, you know, you can't have heavy demands on requirements. Mm-hmm. It, we've gotten to where now we ask for fingerprinting, but that's probably the last 10, 15, 10 years or so. It's not even a full 10 years where we started asking for that. But you have to have low barriers to entry because you need them to coach. And so right. what that means is you can't then demand training. You're not going to get continuing education. Even at our college level, coaches don't have to have any kind of training in any relevant fields. Mm-hmm. They maybe were former athletes or they were someone who kind of jumped into athletics and had good networks and found themselves in a coaching job. But no relevant training, no continuing education, no certifications. And that's a part of the problem that we have. And that's why you can't just assume that automatically we're going to get all the benefits. Yeah. Um, and that's why we have to be a little bit more careful and vigilant about what's so, going on. Like from this kind of perspective, then like your perspective of having you know gone through this as a kid and a teen and from what you know now being a parent, right. like what are the things that make a, like a good coach, a coach who is helping you know, free you of zombification as opposed to zombifying you. <laughs> so, the, you know, if you read on it, folks will say there's the technical aspect. Do they know the sport? Um, the other would be emotional, more or less like psychology. Are they good emotionally? And that has to include development. People are not always thinking of this developmentally, right? So we automatically move into advanced socialization. We start to look at these kids and think, could they be this professional so-and-so 
and we automatically move them that way without thinking, is this good for them at this developmental stage? Are they ready for these kinds of demands? Can they think about it this way? So they want to lead the team when you tell them they're the star and they should be the star. So they even want these kinds of things. Um, so I generally think that a good coach is one who really goes about thinking of the life lessons first and foremost. It's not about the sport. I was, I was just watching uh, a short documentary that was funded by ASU where a coach in Baltimore, Baltimore, uh, what is it? It's, it's a Baltimore swim club, but predominantly African-American where the, you know, that's not where you expect African-Americans to be competing. And what the coach said was, I found that when I focused on character and leadership and not actually on swimming, they got faster. Hmm. And so cool. a lot of it is when kids know you care, right? It's, it is that basic relational aspect. Kids know that you care. There's a lot that they're willing to do. And it's a good and bad effect, right? This is the abusive parent. But if they feel like the abuse, the yelling, screaming is a signal of caring or love, then they're still going to go through walls for that parent. They're still going to believe in them. And so it is emphasizing those relational aspects. And it's not just picking out those that you think might be good. It's being having a, a relationship with each and every athlete. So that ratio needs to be the right ratio. You can't have too many kids where a coach can't really get to know the, mm -hmm. the, the players. And then I think, yeah, it is also about development. When I was coaching these young girls, I, had, I went and I watched high school girls playing soccer. I went and watched college girls playing huh. soccer and women and really tried to, well, what's going on at these different levels? What is it that, that is there? And I didn't try to make... My little girls play like college players, but what I did learn by looking at that media, middle group, the high schoolers, is that these parents were yelling, be aggressive, be aggressive, be aggressive. And so as a sociologist, I said, well, our socialization is to tell them not to be aggressive. So now you're asking them to, to flip a switch, and now you're yelling and screaming at your kid as opposed to the, them just being able to play. Um, and at the college level, they're very physical. And uh -huh. so I looked and said, I'm a basketball coach by nature. That's what I do. I had my girls, we did drills where they had to touch each other. You know, they had to lean on each other. And it wasn't hurting anybody. It wasn't pushing. But we just did what in basketball would be box out drills. When you watch a soccer player and they have to keep a player from getting to the ball, literally, they just use their body. Yeah. And so I didn't have to, I never had to talk to them about being aggressive. They just used their body and they came to understand that their body was it's okay to touch one yeah. another and to be physical. And then I had them doing circuits. So they would do burpees, they would do sit-ups, they did lunges, and everything was about learning their body because I also knew that that was important. Like, yeah. Get to know your body. Believe in your body. Believe in fitness. Well, and that's Everybody so has important at that age, right? Absolutely. And, uh, for so many different Absolutely. reasons. Absolutely. Yeah. So those are the things that I emphasize and then always having each other's back. We always had fun. We always had each other's back. And I was not a great tactician. And so I learned that that was the limit. Like when she got to 10 or 11, I said, you know, what? I can't coach anymore because I don't know the formations you should be playing in. I can't counter. And I don't want you all to get frustrated with losing. They didn't worry about records because we looked at our own progress. Look at how we've gotten better. We were losing games by three and four goals. By the end of the season, we're tying the best teams and we played hard. And that's what we took pride in. Look at how much stronger we've gotten physically. Look at how together we are. Look at how. And so we judged and evaluated ourselves by ourselves. What was our starting mark? 
and where did we end? We didn't worry about the other teams quite as much. And that was, that was a real positive experience. My best, my best coaching, I believe, and, and the most fun I've ever had coaching was coaching those young girls from eight to about 11, 11 years of age. That's awesome. It sounds like a lot of it is about kind of creating a feeling of safety, right? With the coach, with the process, with your team. Absolutely. And if you have that, then, you know, if you're coming from a place of safety and security, you can actually tolerate way more stress, Absolutely. right? But if you're just kind of coming at it with this super negative punishing approach, eventually you just get so stressed that your performance suffers, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 you know, the girls can then learn to either mimic what the coach is doing, which they'll do. They'll start getting on each other, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what the coach does. And the coach may reward that behavior. They're being a leader as opposed to, you know, so we're always role modeling as adults. Yeah. And so I took that to, you know, I, I, I took that very seriously too. How am I role modeling what's supposed to be done? And even when you play a girl who may have lesser skill, you know, do you give her the opportunity to play freely? The other girls are watching, even those who may want to win. I had to talk to some of them sometimes and say, no, everybody gets an opportunity to play and we're all getting better. Nobody is a professional here. So we don't get down on somebody. We encourage them. Yeah. But you have to you have to again be deliberate about those kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's interesting kind of thinking of it in terms of the zombification stuff, right? You can either take a positive approach right to shaping behavior where you're like providing incentives you're building people up or you can take a negative punishing approach and both of those are ways that you can control people absolutely. you can shape them right <laughs> absolutely um and you know in some ways like the negative approach you can it's cheaper like yes. for someone to yes. try to manipulate someone but with the punishing approach right. Um, it takes less time and energy to get someone to change their behavior than actually like creating new patterns and, in, you know, reinforcing positive patterns. So um, so it's interesting to kind of yeah. think about. It's not easy. Coaching in those <laughs> it isn't easy. terms. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the sort of idea of sort of both teamwork and sportsmanship? Like, because I think. I think that's an interesting dynamic in sports, you know, where it's right. like there's there's. There's competition within the team for, like, who gets to be, like, the starter, you know? And then there's also, like, I noticed, like, the first year my daughter played volleyball, they were nasty. Like, they would, like, you know, they do these cheers that were, like, just trash-talking the other schools. Like, Like, oh, I don't know. Like, it just... It wasn't, like... They weren't saying anything offensive, like, because it was in school. But they just... I remember, like... So, this was, like, JV middle school volleyball... The girls would be trying to learn to serve. And so if a girl from the other team would miss a serve, they'd go nuts. They'd be like, yeah. And I, and like, I remember talking to my daughter and be like, don't like get that excited if somebody misses a serve. Like, if you guys have a great play, then cheer, you know? And like, if you guys get a point, sure, clap. But just like, I'm like, you know, you don't need to go like wild if someone just misses a serve, you know? Because this person's going to feel bad. And so... Um, so it was more like that sort of thing. Like it wasn't necessarily like they they wouldn't like insult anybody. Like they knew, but they just they were shared s- mistakes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so um, they were just like all in with the Schadenfreude. <laughs> they just wanted to win. You know what I mean? Like it was like just anything that lets us win is right. good. Right. And then and I'm thinking I'm like these are sixth graders. You know, they're like ten <laughs> years old, eleven years old, and they're 
trying to hit the ball. They've never, most of these girls have never right. seen a volleyball before. I mean, they'd seen a volleyball, but you know what I mean? They right. just like, like my daughter, a week before tryout, she was like, I want to play volleyball. I'm like, volleyball? Okay, let's figure out. Like, I didn't even know how the scoring system worked. <laughs> and so, and so, but it's still, I think they've gotten better as they've matured, but there's still this sort of cutthroat nature to it, you know, which I guess maybe it's sort of inherent in competition, but then... It's, it's not inherent. It's not inherent. It doesn't have to be, and it isn't. Um, so in during my grad work, I, I say I had two advisors. I had my real academic advisor in sociology, but I coached with uh, a guy who is a, a guru. He, In terms of basketball, he was a legend in Philadelphia in their Hall of Fame, Was is actually in the Basketball Hall of Fame altogether. He played... Uh, against and beat Wilt Chamberlain in high school. High school. Then married Wilt's sister. Uh, but he was a fantastic basketball player and then coached for many years. Has had several players actually coach Kobe Bryant's dad and, you know, coach the player who has the third all-time leading scorer in NCAA history. You know, so really, uh, really is a guru. And uh, I coached and learned under him. That was what my dissertation research is, was from. And I kept coaching with him years after, so I'm still using that data and, and go back to Philadelphia. And in it, one of the things that struck me early on was as competitive as he is, he is all about winning, and that's where he'll tell you, I'm a winner. Uh-huh. But we would play other teams, <clears throat> excuse me, and if a kid on the other team made a great play, he's clapping. Yeah, mm. Great play, kid. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> like, And after the game, and because he was one of the founders of the league, he also said, they're all of our kids. Now, we were specific about our team, but he also saw this as these kids are all of our kids. And that's one of the differences. There are plenty, there are coaches who take it on, even at the high school level with other high schools, that all of these kids that I'm happy and want to see all of these kids, whether they're on the other team or my team, I want to see all of them succeed. I'm happy when I see a kid, you know, reaching a high level. That's fun to see. That's exciting. I'm not just yay for me and boo for you. And that really did teach me a lot. Now, I remember I got to play against some really great players in high school, Jason Kidd. I actually grew up with Jason, but I got to play against him as high school as a rival. J.R. Ryder, who went on and played in the pros, Brent Berry. And I remember I actually ran into J.R. Ryder, who's a uh, Phoenix guy now, who lives in Phoenix area. And I talked about, man, I remember when you came to our gym and you dunked on this guy and I jumped out of my seat and the coach glared at me, but it was one of the best plays I've ever seen in my life. And to reward kids, to see a kid on the opposing team, when you tell them good job, I mean, it really does stick with you. And and you want to do it more because you see how they go, hey, this is somebody who just is, is, is appreciating me. And, you know, when you get praise from a stranger, when a stranger wants you to do well, that that's a good human feeling. Like that, That's good yeah. for humanity. Yeah. Like I don't even know this person, and they're telling me they appreciated what I've done. And while it is a part of the zomb- zombification, like in Philadelphia, they are crazy about basketball. They're crazy about other sports, but basketball in particular, particularly the group of folks that I was with, and, you know, a woman could walk by and see a kid in high school and say, I heard about you. And these, I mean, status and the praise, the recognition, the social rewards mm-hmm. that come with that are huge in Philadelphia. And so 
I've learned that that was an important thing to do was to acknowledge kids on the other team for doing well. And yet we might talk smack to each other. So a Philadelphia <laughs> kid on the opposing team might come over and say, yo, you need to get somebody else to guard me because your kid can't handle me. And we might, and I'm like, oh, okay. And depending on the kid's attitude, I might say, you know what? Okay, I'm coming to get you. And then I'll tell a kid, hey, go get them. But we can actually have fun with it. Uh-huh. And after it, you know, you pat them on the backside and say, hey, man, you play tough. I really like you. I like your game. You know, I'm going to pay attention. And they come to look, look, look for that. And so they, these kids will see you as almost one of their coaches from mm-hmm. then on. And that's a, a thing that you want. So, so I learned to take that with me. You're keeping it playful, right? Because ultimately Absolutely. it's play, it right? Play. And if you forget it, it that and you're play. just like, you know, this is the competition that is yeah. going to determine yeah. the rest of my life and Absolutely. who cares about anybody else, you're not playing anymore. Absolutely. Right? It's like become something else. And you never know what a kid needs to hear. So there are times in which it's not just when a kid is playing well, when a kid who you know plays well struggles, I've said to them, hey, man, I know it was a tough game for you. Keep your head up. You're mm. going to be okay. And you never know whether a kid needs to hear that. I, I needed to hear that, and I got that. When I quit, I went back to watch a game the next year, and a coach from the opposing team, our biggest rival, he sees me and pulls me aside and says, I never knew you were struggling over there. I wish I had known. And wow. he's like, I would have loved to have, have you, had you on my team. I wish I had known. And that went a long way for me was, mm. you know, yeah, somebody else did care. They saw me. They didn't just see me as an opponent. They saw me as a kid, you know, who goes through whatever I go through. And so those are important things. And I take that very seriously, too. I, we're a parent. You know, I'm a parent. I'm an adult. And I'm a coach. When I am in that situation, I am supervising. I don't want my kids to get hurt. I don't want another kid team, uh, a kid on another team to get hurt. I've told referees, you're just blowing a whistle when we're out here supervising. You have to look in a, and, and see if are, are these kids being dangerous to themselves. You don't have to blow a whistle. You can stop and, and, and punish with a foul. If things are getting out of hand, stop the whole game. Call all the kids and tell them what it is you think they should mm. learn. And these are things that even with refereeing who do go through some training, often they're not getting that either. Their thought is, I'm a job. This is my job. I'm getting paid now. Not what, you know, but what if all of us as adults took it seriously? We're here for all of these kids. We're here to create the safe spaces you talked about. And we want all of them to benefit from from sport in this way. And we work together in that way, even if, you know, it's then playful for us to compete. Competition can be fun. It doesn't have to be cutthroat, but it is too often we get straight to the cutthroat when at all costs and not thinking about the larger goals. Yeah. And the whole building character thing that really struck me when you said that earlier, you know, to actually have that be the active goal of the coaching of the leagues. Right. Like you're building character. And that's something that you actually you need a community to really build character. And if everyone's on the same page about that, it seems like it could be really powerful for the development, right? Right, right. And yeah. I know a lot of people probably say, well, then Scott probably doesn't win a lot <laughs> because that sounds like you, you're taking this real, you know, soft approach to it. But the, the truth of the matter is you can win um, with your kids playing hard and playing well and being good sports about it. Um, and you win whether it happens on the scoreboard or not mm-hmm. just by your kids having the best experience and being able to say, 
I learned things from from this, you know, and and them being able to appreciate when they play against their opponents. And sometimes they're their friends anyway. So it is, again, you're allowing them to be playful um, and you're allowing them to see that the lessons that they get here really can translate. So I think there's a lot of magic we just hope come out of sport. We just say, if you do this, then you'll be a leader. If you do this, you'll have character. And it, those things don't, they come at a, at a price when you do them the wrong ways. Right? Yeah, right. It sounds like what you're trying to do is actually build capacity. You yes. know, both right. their like long-term capacity right. and character, right. but, you know, potentially also just in the not totally short term, their capacity to be a team, Absolutely. to do well on the field, right? Absolutely. All of those things, you know, if you're taking the approach of, you know, really investing as opposed Absolutely. to just trying to extract, Absolutely. right, their competitive impulses and Absolutely. get them to, you know, do like as much as they possibly can push themselves to the limit every game, right? right, right? If right. you're like, okay, well, how do we build the team? How do we right. build our capacity? How do we build our ability to, you know, take on the stress of competition Absolutely. in a way that is, you know, beneficial for everybody? Yeah. Okay, I want to jump in with some more questions from here. So, <laughs> uh, so when it comes to youth sports, yeah. Do you think that the the way that the systems are set up does that make a like a problem for autonomy for individuals really being able to decide for themselves what they're wanting to do? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we actually one of the strange things is we have a lot of autonomy here when you compare us to other countries where they kind of shepherd you into certain sports based on what they've measured you to be good at. So if your body type and so on. And so some have talked about our there after the Beijing Olympics, um, ESPN's magazine came out and they did this study. It was the first time in a while we had won the overall medal count as we usually do in the Olympics, but we did not win the gold count. And that hadn't happened in a while. China had actually beaten us. So there was this whole reflection on well, what happened and the, the American, the U.S. Olympic Committee was kind of you know, they were frantic about, wait, what does this mean? Are we falling? Are we falling to China? Is it really happening now? And all this concern. And so they asked the, actually, ASU swim coach now, Michael Bowman, who's Coach Phelps and a bunch of other uh, great Olympic uh, folks. And he said, you know, our system is really, we're lucky because we don't do this national program of kind of looking to see who would be good at what. And he said, when I look at the USA basketball team, their bodies are actually more ideal for swimming than most of the swimmers I have. He said, because wow. we want length. So you're, he's like, and so he gave a, a real specific example. He said, I'm at the Baltimore Aquatic Center and here is Carmelo Anthony who plays on the USA basketball team. He's six foot eight, six foot nine. He's long and lean muscles, huge hands, which would make for good paddles. He's like, large feet like he's like all of this that goes on and he said and michael phelps who swam at the baltimore aquatic center he said michael would travel 45 minutes one way to get to me carmelo anthony could walk to my baltimore aquatic center in less than 10 minutes he said but because of segregation and economics and the way that we and so you look at sports so racially segregated mm. he said the likelihood of carmelo getting into my pool he said, you know, he could have been in another city, another state. It just wasn't going to happen. Carmelo was going to play basketball or football because that's what black kids do. 
mm. in the inner city. He said, and so that's the problem that we have is that this is a pay for play model. It's racially segregated and you have to be able to get access. And so for those kids, even who might have a notion of it, they're fighting cultural stereotypes. They're fighting whether or not they can pay for it. They're fighting all of these things. And so kids have autonomy in the sense, as long as it fits within those cultural stereotypes and they can pay for it, they can play in sports as opposed to other countries where they're kind of, they're not allowed to, in some ways. They're not given the opportunities to fully develop, if we're talking about elite athletes, to fully develop, you know, if they don't fit that kind of body type. But our system is very racially segregated and that creates, you know, this luck. So there's really very, two very different kinds of ways that autonomy is being limited in these yes. two systems, right? In the yep. Chinese system, it's much more based on like a top-down assessment. Right. And right. then in our system, it's sort of all of these structural inequality issues yep. Yep. that and really are... bottom up your culture and what they do in your neighborhood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So for for kids who are wanting to find like a good fit with sports like they're they end up being really limited by where they come from basically, absolutely is what you're saying yeah, yeah. in this country at least yeah, yeah. and those resources that, that are attached to where they come from absolutely. Mm -hmm. so, so but in china if a kid had you know a lot of natural skill they could potentially get picked sort of from top down absolutely. and then have resources put towards their training for their life like yeah. for a long time being you know being developed yeah yeah now the negative yao ming's uh, case he came from a small town, um, small province, and then a small town, and he was courted by the government to play. And he kept saying no, kept saying no. They were putting out billboards saying that he needed to play. Then there was a whole shame campaign. And so he was forced by his family, like, hey, it's better for you to go play. We're catching a lot of heat by you not playing. Wow. And so there's there's research, there's books on it. It's in one of the main books called Project Ming. Uh, Yao Ming, and he was literally a governmental project to go and get him because they thought he could save, you know, Chinese basketball. And he talks about that pressure of having to be there for that nation. And he didn't like it. He, he's he's wow. soft-spoken. He's shy. He didn't want all of that attention. And yet he didn't have a choice. Wow. And that kind of thing actually happens on a smaller scale in high school sports sometimes, right? Where a coach will be like, you yeah. play on my team, Absolutely. right? And Absolutely. and then the social pressure just Absolutely. within the school Absolutely. can influence kids Absolutely. in a. I mean, it's not as as large of a scale as right, what happened right, with Ming, right. but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so going back to the idea of the racial segregation, right? Like between different sports and things, what can we do to sort of improve that? You know, like yeah, it's a it's a tough thing. I mean. You know, whether you're looking at school districts and we talk about particularly in the South, um, you know, when we got to school districts, there is as much uh, difference between the resources within a school district as there were between school districts. Right. So the whole separate but equal kind of things just kept going. Like, so, like you mean like different school? like So, yeah, within Atlanta school district, I'll give you as an example, sure. you'll have household incomes that might be 150 plus at one school and they'll compete with another school in their school district and they're, you know, 110% below poverty line. Okay. And so you've got these huge differences, although they're relatively close, right? And they sure. have to compete against one another. So we'd have to find a way to share 
those kinds of resources across school districts. It's just one example uh-huh. of what you'd have to do. You know, our tax system where, you know, the, the household and what you're paying on rent, right, the property taxes and whatnot going to those local resources, that inhibits this ability to share it across to other you know, other areas where they don't have the same amount of household incomes, where they don't have property taxes. So in a place like a Philly, you know, there's yeah. magnet schools that are in the city that will attract people who have big money and they'll send their kids into the city. But the kids who are local might be living in Section 8 or might be living, you know, in the projects. And, you know, how do you balance that? You've got to get people to be able to say, I'm willing to share my resources to have it go to those areas. And instead, yeah. we hold on to ours. As Americans, we kind of believe that's my right. I earned this money. I went and bought land here. I'm paying all these taxes for these schools to be good. I want my kids to have the benefit. And that's where we have a problem. But you would need to be able to do that so that there are more swim centers throughout the country, sure. right? Yeah. And, and, and that gives access. Knowing, um, so when you have kids competing and they have such differences when they're competing with other schools, you're seeing in, in areas, sports like football where they have to travel. You know, I coached at a high school in, in Riverside, California, and our kids were, our school was 90% free lunch. So kids were coming to school and hadn't eaten, and we're expecting them to practice. So mm. we we just came to leave bread. We went to Costco and regularly bought bread and peanut butter and said, here's peanut butter and jelly. You can at least have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But we as coaches who were getting a stipend of $1,000 for the season, like we're already getting well underpaid. We're, we're in the negatives for our time commitment. We're having to spend more of our own resources just to help our kids be able to compete you know, with some food, let alone you go to a school that has boosters and they've got catered lunches or catered lunches before they hop on the road and chartered buses. And, yeah. you know what I mean? So we have to really get better at being willing to share those resources that give our kids access to different rec centers that have all the kind of facilities you'd want, um, as well as the opportunity to compete with the same level of nutrition. And, you know, you can't you can't legislate sleep. But right when a kid is coming from tougher backgrounds, how they're able to sleep, you know, their exposure to materials that give them asthma. We've got all these other health risks that come with uh, socioeconomics. So it's a tough thing. It sounds like a lot of it actually comes back to shifting the attention onto the character building aspect of sports. Right. Because if that's what everyone is coming to it with, if that's what the kids are coming to it with, that's what the coaches are coming to it with, that's what the parents are coming to it with, then it's not as much about, okay, how do I give my kid the advantage over everybody else? But instead, it's about how do I create a community that's going to build character for my kids? And, you know, for the kids who are coming from the wealthier backgrounds, it's a very character building experience to learn about the privilege that they're coming from through truly, you know, being a part of a community that's more diverse. And so I think there might be a lot of opportunities there where it's not just, oh, hey, you have stuff, you should, you know, give it to someone who doesn't have stuff, but just how do we create the community where the focus for everyone is on the character building side of things. Yeah, so I I had a very interesting conversation um, with, so ASU's uh, athletic apparel partners, Adidas. Adidas has given our Global Sport Institute, they've been giving us a generous gift. Um, It's philanthropic, so we do whatever research we want to do, but we we also do partner with them on certain things. So I was speaking to 
the Scholastics VP who was talking about making this deal with the Atlanta School District. And she wanted to level the playing field. So she was asking if we could do some research to help. And one of the things, so that's looking at an athletic apparel company who has a desire, at least one person in particular, to say, how can we help level this playing field? And so I gave her, I said, well, you know, the college level, we do profit sharing across our conference. So when a team does well and goes to a you know playoff tournament, that is shared across all the schools. Uh. So if you created a profit sharing model within that school district, because they're making money off of big time football games and other things, that would help the district. I said, if you created a, a, a committee of the student athletes, so you take four or five student athletes from each school and they meet and talk about the different resource needs and issues going on across it. You start to build this community that you're speaking of. So I said, you know, that would be powerful because they get to share and learn. Oh my goodness. So you don't have those kinds of things. And then when their parents are saying, I'm willing to put $10,000 to help this school, but I don't care about the other school, their kid might actually hold them accountable. That's no, right. I've actually yeah. met these folks over there and mom and dad, do you realize like they don't even, they can't do this or do that. I think that maybe we should have, you know, both teams have a, have a meal before the game. Like maybe I think the kids could be far more creative and would be yeah. much more willing to share because we do start off talking to our kids about, Hey, don't make other kids feel bad. Right. right. <laughs> it's yeah. only when they get to a certain level, we start to really change all that. But for the most part, all of us are geared towards, we want our kids to feel good and other kids but we lose it somewhere along the, the way. And I think if you allow our youth to start to come up, you know, give them the, uh, the opportunity to make some of these decisions, they'll make better decisions than we're making. And they'll figure out how to help one another. And I think that those would be great community building kind of uh, aspects that, that would help us. Even when, even when I think about, you know, Greta's volleyball team, it's like they go, they play, they and then they go home you know yeah. and and it's true in tempe as well you know it's yeah. like the the schools are there's a lot of differences in terms of the makeup of who's it's going to these are. schools you know and um and so it's like yeah by being a part of the sports she's i saw that for the first time and then but then it's still it's like it still doesn't seem like they quite meet the other kids you know right. what i mean right. like right. and so Hmm. It does seem like a things like that. Like, like I, yes. the idea of a, even a meal, you know, where everybody like gets dinner, like even like a season, you know, like once or twice a season, have all the kids from every school get together right. for like right. dinners. Right. It's like that would. They're, they're, they're going through that shared experience of having to manage their their school life with their sport life. You know, all of those pressures, like there's so many things they have in common, yeah. you know, but we, we can't get to that and we can only deal with the surface level you know, uh, ways in which we're we're segregated and which we're different. <laughs> and I think that that becomes one of those, you know, it, again, it's a lost opportunity when we could really maximize how sport brings people together. We say it all the time, but it's not, it, it may literally bring them in the same space. That does not mean that there's any real valuable exchange that helps to better things. Again, there's a lot of, you know, assumptions that we make that just by putting them in together that means it's going to lead to something wonderful and that doesn't just happen yeah. you have to you have to teach them you have to be able to talk about it we've got a you know role model those kinds of things and you know i right. think we can do a lot better it's like a cultural shift right to, absolutely yeah yeah so you know when we talk about zombification it's not always bad right like a lot of the things that we're talking about in terms of, you know, building character or creating infrastructure for a community. I mean, those are things that 
influence people's behavior Absolutely. and that can be positive. Absolutely. So are there other aspects of sort of getting zombified by sports, especially for youth that are, are positive, you think? I, I, yes, I think so. And, and I want to be fair to coaches. In most cases, coaches are very well-meaning, well-intentioned, and they want everybody to have fun. Um, again, I think we just get caught up in some of those things, but I think that those are, um, I, I often can appeal to coaches when I'm giving presentations and talking to them, like, you really do want your kids to develop. You really want to see them improve. Not necessarily that they've got to become a star. You really want, and everyone says yes. And we love the puzzle of learning kids. You know, and we, and we, as a coach, you'll see how many coaches become YouTube coaches where they're, they're boning up on everything they can about that sport when they don't know it. I spent so much time looking at drills on YouTube, going Google searching, <laughs> and you can really nerd out on just like, how do I get this and do this right? I've worked with a, a college coach, a women's volleyball coach, Division One, and the amount of time she spent in trying to figure out character and leadership and just trying new ways. I mean, coaches really do do that. And you, you see with, with kids, you know, you can get lifelong friendships out of sport. Again, it's usually with only within your own team, but still they want to go back and, 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 and play. Right. And they love coaches who make it fun. My daughter used to always say to me, dad, we don't play enough games when we're at practice. Right. She wanted it to be fun at all times. So, okay, let's figure out games. Let's, Let's learn to do these things. And those are really positive aspects. Just to stay fresh and to keep doing different things, to get them to think, to utilize their brains, to work together. I love doing practices where if I was frustrated with their lack of communication, I'd say, okay, now we're not going to get to talk. No one gets to talk and you've got to play a game. <laughs> and then after a while, they start to go, well, how, are we, how do we get this done, coach? Exactly. <laughs> right. So now I want you to realize how much how how much value there is to communicating. But you've got to be creative in trying to figure out how to get them to do it. And I had uh, a high school travel basketball team. We played competitively. They were all sophomores and juniors in high school. I said, most of you, they're pretty middle class. We're in a college town in, in Missouri. So they had gone to camps at the local university. They had done all of this. And I said, there's probably not much that I can say to you you haven't already heard. So this team is going to be you all's team. Mm. I'm not, I, I, I don't, when it comes to a game, I said my job is to help kind of prepare you for what it might be like in a game and how to think and communicate. Those are the things I will hold myself responsible for. But in a game, when you're on the court, I want you all to decide when a timeout is called. You guys have heard when you're supposed to. So I could quiz them about what what happens when you're down by a lot of points. What should you do? And they tell me, well, you got to speed the game up. I need more possessions. These are things they already know. So often by the time they're, you know, kids who have played for a few years, by the time they're a, a junior in, in high school, there isn't much that they don't know in terms of strategy. They may learn a new offense and learn this and that. But I just found myself, let me just support you. And what you guys already know, I want you to learn to work better together. I want you all to encourage each other. So I had them do an exercise where it was, you have to pick four teammates and talk about what you value about their game and where you think they're not utilizing everything that they have in terms of their gifts, their abilities. And hmm. to have them hear that 
you know, people read it aloud. People were like, I didn't know you thought I was a good athlete. I didn't know you thought, yeah, it's not just me who believes in you. Your teammates believe nice. in you. And so, yeah. you know, there again, there's all these ways in which if we're deliberate and we try, sport can do all these positive things. And the kids know it and they're aware of it because they do hear all of these things about it. And we need to give this control back to them. We need to say, this is for you. It's yours. And at a certain age, you should be shepherds of what this experience should be. Right. And let me just kind of help guide where I think there's extra things that maybe I can provide. Right. But there are a lot of uh, positives, particularly when you're talking about young girls. I think there are po- a lot of positives to have. You know, I, I had to convince my daughter she was an athlete because she didn't know it. And I said, well, why is it you think that? Well, you know, my brothers play, but I, I'm not really playing yet. And I had to tell her, no, you're just as much an athlete as they are. You've got the same genes. You've got bigger legs than they do. you got more powerful legs. You're, you're strong. You're fast. And, you know, really finding those ways for them to embrace themselves, their body, at whatever body type they have, really trying to encourage them to, to do that. So I think it really does a good, good thing for girls. Uh, we had one... A girl who had uh, a prosthetic and she played with us and you know she was her parents were very much there is no pity I remember the first time she fell and her prosthetic was below her knee came off and I was like freaked out and I went to go grab it and she stopped me grabbed it before I could and hopped right back up and there is no and so Mm. when we played other teams there were panicked parents like you (laughs) you broke a leg like all these kinds of things and we came to laugh because we're like, you don't even know how she is, right? And everyone thought she was so fragile, and she was not. And she refused. Her parents taught her, and she refused to let you think of her as fragile. And that was one thing that we we became, everyone came to accept. We need all-inclusive teams when it's possible. It depends on whether it's a physical challenge or a cognitive challenge. But finding ways to be more inclusive of all groups of you know abilities and whatnot Having more leagues that are developmentally where you may have different ages because, you know, kids grow at different rates, you know, Hmm. so you got to figure out. So we need a range of highly competitive leagues down to leagues that are not so competitive, because, yes, I think you still need to push those who really are aspiring and they really want it. There should be a place for them to go after that. But there also needs to be a place for kids to always have fun and even adults. A lot of us, once we're done in high school, there is no more competing. And that's not good for our health. It can still be a good stress release. Like we yeah. need to have more sports, you know, opportunities for all of us in in all these inclusive ways. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So when we kind of get to the end of episode, we always ask this question yep. of like, what is the version of the zombie apocalypse for this kind of zombification? Right. Like, yeah. so if everyone was zombified by yeah. youth sports, like yeah. kids parents, yeah. coaches, yeah. schools, universities, yeah. everyone yeah. was just utterly zombified. What would that world look like? Um, am I looking at the good way or the bad way? You can take it whatever way you want. <laughs> so I, I, let me take it as the good way. Um, a woman I met, a colleague in South Africa is German, and she talked about her 80-year-old mother. So they, she said they grow up in sports clubs. And it's neighborhood based and they go to rec centers and they play in that for their whole lives. She said her 80 year old mother is still taking walks every Thursday with her sport club and they walk to the next town. She said they get pizza and ice cream and walk back. And I went, 
And so I started thinking of how could I do that? Not just have when I have the girls that I'm coaching, but having their parents on Saturdays, even when our league is no longer in session. And what if we met every Saturday and just went for a walk in the trail? So this was in Missouri, walk for the, in the trail, or those who wanted to run, ran, those who wanted to bike, went on bikes. And we did this for our lives. It was really that community sense. And so really going to play in schools, whether it's, you know, middle school or high school, even college, it's just a time away to do, do another form of that community. But you come back to a community that you're always able to reconnect with. And that to me would be the ideal, right? So it might be federally subsidized in a way that it's about our health and our wellness overall, but we never have to stop playing. And there's all these ways of within your community, it's built in. You're not paying for going to Lifetime Fitness or going to LA Fitness. You got this local rec center that's all inclusive for all abilities and everybody comes in there and you can do whatever you want to do. I, I, I've dreamt of a, a, a fitness center or a gym that was all, called recess and you showed up and it was that. recess <laughs> and think about going yeah. back to recess at, at grammar school and it might be kickball or dodgeball and you hop in a game and then those who want specific training they can get specific training whether they're an adult or a kid but we can all just have recess and just pop in in and out and do what we want to do and i think that that kind of version of fun at its heart that again is about community where we take care and shepherd each other's kids all together you know, all inclusive of all abilities, LGBT, race, ethnicity. I think that that's something that I would love to see as a zombie apocalypse. That's a, can I sort of point out one way that I think we are zombified and are thinking about sports? Yeah. That, like, even though that's a really positive note, but I, yeah. I think like we've talked about like with like the different districts in Atlanta and things, yeah. we have like we have this sort of idea that it's like, the school's always competing against the other school, right. right? And there's like, what's that study with like the Rattler? Like they put the two people on the different oh, teams, yeah, you know, like these kids at summer camp and then they experiment. end up. Yeah. And I'm thinking about like when I used to play like pickup games of basketball yeah. and you'd be on like a different team every time, you know? So then you're cooperating. Yeah. And I think there's a way that it's like, now obviously like at a professional level, we're not going to just randomly assign players to different teams every time. But we're so used to this idea of like whenever – my daughter goes to play against another school. She's always playing against the other yes. school. Right. The coalitional identity is what's being made really salient. Yeah. And that can be a really powerful motivator, yeah. but it might also have some negative effects if you get people to focus on that at the expense of the community yeah. building and yeah. character building. I wonder I wonder if it would be helpful to every once in a while just have like, especially like schools to have, be like, all right, we're right, now you're playing. Yeah. We're going to pick five people from each yeah. school and you're just all going to, you know what I mean? Just... Well, giving a shout out to our our, our Philly, uh, Philadelphia, their ba the basketball system at Philly, because you play at a high school level, you play playground basketball, you play travel basketball. We have summer leagues all over the city all times. It lends itself to that. So yeah. I had kids who would play on my team in the Sunny Hill League, and then they go play in two or three neighborhood summer leagues where they're playing against kids that might be on other teams in our league, but they're on their team. And they are playing against all these different kids and they're rotating. Sometimes they're teammates, sometimes they're not. And I really got to see that. So they there was much more of a camaraderie, but that basketball system in Philly is really developed. Yeah, when and I used to play bitty basketball in Philly, yeah. it would be you'd be on a different team yeah. every time, yeah. you know? And so the guy Well, yeah, and it's also because you can play at different levels. So you can play at highly competitive all the way down the wreck, and the kids do. So yeah. if I'm a basketball player, I would play at a neighborhood summer league that means nothing. 
and it's really kind of silly and we're just kind of having fun and it doesn't carry any kind of status to it, but I'm just playing with local friends. And then I might go to one level up where it's a little bit more status, more people show up, there's more bragging rights, but I'm on a totally different team with different guys. And then I play for my high school during the summer at another tournament. And then I'm playing, you're in the Sunny Hill League, which is, and so they get to play around and move around the city, which was also good, because kids uh, who are used to playing in their hood often, you know, whether it's just, and it's not always formal gang lines, but they're just not able to navigate the city as much without danger. And That's so when they can actually travel because the, the the league is in another city, in another part of town, that actually got them around. And the universities were the hosts. So we play games at Temple University, we play games at St. Joe's, we play games at LaSalle. So literally you got kids who, you know, were would be first generation college students who got to go to three or four different major universities, really, around Philadelphia and play. And that was a tremendous thing. That's why that league means so much to me, mm -hmm. because it, it gave them that portability. And the model was you'd start in the sixth, seventh and eighth grade league. Then you played in the ninth and 10th grade, then 11th and 12th. We had a college league and it had started with a sim with a pro league. And it was always the older team from the same neighborhood. It was based on neighborhood. So I coached in South Philly. Older kids from South Philly would come to our practices for the sixth, seventh and eighth graders. So they're mm -hmm. literally peer mentoring. They they have someone to look up to. They take them under their wing. That that league is called a community involvement league. And it was all about your community, having coaches from the community. Sometimes, you know, they might be police officers or probation officers. So when they develop those partnerships, when a kid finds themselves in trouble, they have I have examples in my field work of a probation officer who's in, with our league, sees one of our kids and goes, What's going on? And they helped them to navigate that that juvenile system. So wow. all of those ways you can replicate it in different ways. But so yeah, you're really yeah, talking that. talking about building that community infrastructure yeah. and that trust that yeah. kind of cuts across the normal ways that the networks might be separated. That's right. right. That's right. And antagonistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, and it builds those bridges. Hmm. So it's almost like you could take this framework of sports that you know, at least um, on the surface is about competition right. and use it to reduce conflict. Absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting. So that's our that's our positive sport. Youth sport zombie apocalypse yes. is, a yes. you know, infrastructure where people have these opportunities in their communities to yeah. actually bridge, yeah. you know, between schools, between um, neighborhoods. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. And one of the other small pieces which I've tried to develop more so is we also had youth who participated in managing the league. So literally they worked on marketing. They, you know, took the stats. So they and some of them have gone on to school, gone into sports management programs and the like. So I love that it, it extended beyond those who are athletes, because if the opportunities are only for those who are good, you're not going to be able to help a lot. And, and kids in our most under-resourced neighborhoods rely on hope in order to make those positive gains. They have to think long-term when they're dealing with such tenuous and really adult situations in the short term, having to make very serious decisions, but they need that hope to think long-term. They need that hope to say, I've got a target. I can keep my eye on the prize when that's a tough thing to do. And so to be able to provide opportunities that say, this is not just about whether or not you're an athlete, 
come on in our league and understand how sports operate. What's the business of sport? And then be able to provide that. And there aren't there. I've never heard of uh, of leagues of other leagues that are that are doing that, where they're literally bringing in youth on a regular basis and say, "Help us to run this league and learn what this means." Nice. And that's an important thing to yeah. So before we finish, I do want to ask you one more question, which is, what advice would you have for parents? Right. So, like, as you know, I've got three kids too. I've got a seven-year-old, twelve-year-old, and a fourteen-year-old. Only my seven-year-old is into sports. He's okay. super into soccer. Okay. Um, but how do we navigate the current systems that we have? You know, in right. mostly in in the U.S. But I mean, I. There's, you know, other systems elsewhere, right? Like the German system. Right. But so how can we figure out how to navigate that best for our kids and for the communities that our kids are a part of? Right. I, I continue to check in with my daughter to make sure she's having fun. Are you having fun? Is this still something you want to do? And I'll ask her why it's fun. Um, because I want to make sure that it's not, you know, me. She feels as though I'm pressuring her. She's actually said that at certain times. I felt like I was doing it because I thought you wanted me to do it. And we had that conversation a couple, maybe a year and a half ago. And I told her, no, my, I really don't really care. <laughs> I want you to be happy. And then she said, oh, well, let me think about it. And then she came back and said, no, I still want to do it. Okay. Mm. And then I checked in with her this morning. Doing those constant check-ins. You know, if you're going to go through training and invest in training and so on, I don't want it to then be you're obligated to do this for me because I see the benefits of her continuing to be physically active. That to me is it. I want her to have lifetime lifetime physical activity. That's my goal. I want her to be healthy. Yeah. And so I tell her, me investing and in you going to do training and you doing that means if that turns into you realize this is normal and this is what you should be doing for your body, that's enough of a payoff for me. I really don't care how good you get or if you want that, then I want to provide the resources and help, but it really doesn't matter to me. I'm with you either way. So that check in first. I want my coaches for my children to really want my kid to, to, to be having fun, but I also want them to want my kid to be their best version of themselves. And so that may mean that they challenge my, my kid. Um, and I'm okay with that. I would stress you need to develop the relationship first though. Right. So I check in with a coach. I want to introduce myself, introduce my, my kid to them, give them whatever kind of insights I think would be helpful. And then I do talk about this being a back and forth, like I'm going to be watching you, right? It's not to intimidate or whatever, but it is, hey, they're still my child. And so, yeah, they're here under your supervision. I want you to be aware that that's how I see it, that you are to keep them safe. And I will talk to you if I think that there are problems with their safety. Not concerned with how you run your program. That is you. That someone is in the school situation. You're hired to do that. I trust you going through all the trainings you need to do. But I am concerned about my my kid and their safety. And then if there are larger things, right, it is how do we keep our kids focused on being good human beings? And so those are the that's the advice. Right. Again, this is not magic. And if the coaches are not giving our kids what they need in terms of character and leadership, it's in our best. You know, it's it just as he said, you got to talk to your kid about how they are treating their opponents, how they're treating their teammates. And really try to help make sure that your kid is able to translate the things that they are experiencing into their their lives long term. Yeah. So how do you balance the like encouraging them to see themselves uh -huh. as athletes yeah. 
with not pressuring them. Right. Like, how, where, how do you navigate that? Yeah. Like, no, like you should do this. You're good. Like yeah. you can do this. And, but also, you know, give them the space. You know, I, I, I think I do it for myself because I still consider myself an athlete and I haven't competed in a long time. <sighs> and so when I tell her she's an athlete, I'm really talking about her body and her strength. I'm not talking about whether or not she's good. That is not what I'm saying. I can encourage her and tell her, well, yeah, you're fast and you can do this. But it's not about whether or not she's good. It's really about she has her own natural gifts and abilities and she is to use them, you know, and, and, and to push herself however she wants. And that's where I'm really trying to make the balance. It's not a necessity. It's not a duty that you do these kinds of things. But it is you do have you are an athlete. And I don't limit that to just her. I think all kids are athletes in certain ways, or most kids can be athletes in certain ways. It really is about finding the sport. It's really about finding the athlete, the, the outlet. But that does not mean go off and become an elite. You got to go off and become Gabby Douglas. You got, no, you don't have to pursue that. Maybe you still want to put all your interest in music. That just doesn't mean you don't have to do this for fun too. So for me, that's the balance. As long as it's fun, and that's all I want for her, as long as it's fun. When it is no longer fun, then to me, it's an easy decision. Do not do it. Yeah. <laughs> Find some other way of being an athlete and, and doing the right things. But that's an encouragement for her to use her body and be active. So you might be zombified by the youth sports, but as long as you're having fun, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> Great. Well, Scott, thank you so much for sharing your brains with us on this episode. <laughs> thank you. My pleasure. And if the whole world says that we're cool, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if you don't want to fall in love, you better tell me right now. And if the whole world says that we're crazy. Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And we would like to thank everyone who helps make Zombified possible, including the Department of Psychology here at ASU. The Lincoln Center for Applied Zombie Apocalypse Ethics, That's right. otherwise and known the, as the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. <laughs> Some people call it that. It's got many names. Uh, we'd also like to thank the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the President's Office at ASU. And all of the brains that help make this podcast. Tal Ram, who does our awesome sound. Neil Smith, who does our illustrations and who will be doing a workshop at the conference we're going to talk about in a second. Yes, an awesome set of workshops so that you can illustrate your way through the zombie apocalypse. 
That's right. Uh, but before we get to that, we'd also like to thank Lemmy, who did the song, Psychological. So. Yes. And our Z team, uh, ASU, who helps us out with everything from transcripts to posting on social media. And uh, we actually have a completely amazingly awesome social media presence now thanks to the awesome z team so you guys rock that's right and if you want to you can find us pretty much everywhere um tiktok youtube facebook whatever they invent after tiktok will be there too uh and you can <laughs> twitter instagram of course right facebook uh, is anybody um, still on facebook yeah i guess we're yeah. We're on Facebook. Well, we are. We're on Facebook. So. <laughs> Nobody else is, but we are. <laughs> um, and you can find out all of that at zombify.org. And so, um, and you can also check out Zam Apocalypse. Yes. To find out about our conference. Yeah. So, so uh, on social media, we've got Zombify, and then we also have our broader brand which is the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And for anything relating to that, if you just look Zam, look up Zam Apocalypse, Z-A-M Apocalypse, Zam Apocalypse, you will find us. Um, and uh, let's talk about the conference, the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Meeting. So, so that's happening October 15th through 18th. And you can see our just amazing lineup of speakers at zombiemed.org. It is, it's so awesome that if I start talking about it right now, I'm going to just like my brain's going to explode. So I can't start. Ooh, otherwise, ooh, 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 do I won't it, be able do to it. stop. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, for example, like Rachel Feltman, Sarah Hill, Barbara Natterson, Horowitz, Donna Zuckerberg. I mean, like the list just goes on. It's like all these totally amazing speakers. And then on top of that, we have a phenomenal set of abstracts that people have submitted. Um, and then we're going to be not just having traditional talks. We're going to be having TV shows that integrate all this, you know, these different perspectives and this different information. So it is really going to be like no other meeting you've ever been to. I promise. That's be awesome. So yeah. Um, so where do they go to register? Zombiemed.org. And if you want to get a taste for what we're doing, you can go to channelz.org. That has a bunch of Q and A's for our shows that we are um, developing right now. That will be uh, part of the meeting in October. And we're we're doing these live streams pretty much every Monday at ten thirty in the morning, our time which is Pacific, 10.30 Pacific, 1.30 Eastern. So check yep. it out. We're on YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter, live streaming. And you can actually chat with us through YouTube and Facebook while we are live streaming. We would love to hear from you. That's right. Also buy stuff. Oh. Yes. Yeah, buy merch. So yes. t-shirts, stickers. I've got my, I got a little pile of stickers right oh, there. Nice. Yeah. So. so you could buy one. I'll send you one. All right. <laughs> um, well, cool. And then where do they buy this? Where do they buy those? All, all of that is at zombified.org. Okay. Zombified.org is a good place to start. Yeah. Zombified.org is a good place to start. And then you can branch out in all sorts of directions from there. Cool. Yeah. Well, well this was a lot of fun. Thanks, Agreed. Dana. So. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. It's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something.
Something supernatural with you Makes me act the way 